listening to Sunday Sermons from Warren Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org. Last week, we introduced chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Today, we want to look at verses 6 through 13. And we want to talk about, as a title, it, True and False Believers. But I want to lay a little foundation for you because here's the the situation with the book of Romans. In Romans chapters 1 through 8, Paul has laid out for us his great theodicy. And that is, uh, he talked about sin and how that sin, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, He said, doesn't matter what your heritage is, what your pedigree is, uh, what nation you belong to, what color of skin you have, what nationality you are, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And for the wages of sin, say it with me, is death. But, <laughs> but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's through Him that we have that relationship. And it's through him that we are able to to know and understand all that God has for us. You jump over to chapter 12 through chapter 16, and that's the practical application of the book. Verses, uh, chapters 1 through 8 are the doctrinal issues of sin, salvation, sanctification. But right in between, it's kind of like an Oreo cookie. (laughs) You've got chapters 1 through 8, chapters 12 through 16, and then you've got chapters 9 through 11. Now, why did did Paul, why did God ultimately give us chapters 9 through 11? Well, for some people, they think that God was trying to confuse us. Because here it talks about God's election. Well, what is God's election? What does that mean? It just simply means that God is sovereign and He chooses at His own will what it is that He wants to do with His creation. I think we would all agree with that. Out of that idea, though, comes two warring tribes a warring tribe called Calvinism. Now, where did that come from? There was a fellow by the name of John Calvin who decided that uh, he wanted to have an area called Geneva that would be basically heaven on earth. And he brought in all of the teachings that he had. He talked about all types of different things, but mostly about the absolute sovereignty of God. Then there was uh, another guy who, in reaction to John Calvin, his name was Jacobus Arminius. Now, how would you like to be tagged with that? Jacobus Arminius. He rebelled against some of the teachings of John Calvin, and we have today Calvinism, and on the other side we have Arminianism. Now, what's the difference between the two? Calvinism is very well explained with a a little uh, acrostic called TULIP. 
T-U-L-I-P. The T is for total depravity. And I believe we would all agree that the Bible teaches us that there's none good, no, not one. We're all sinners, born into this world as sinners. We are sinners not because we commit acts of sin. We commit acts of sin because we are sinners. We are sinners by nature. There is nothing in us that caused God to save us. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're all condemned. But the U of TULIP stands for unconditional election. Now there's where we have a little rub. The L stands for limited atonement. Some teach, especially those who are strong, what we would call hyper-Calvinists, that limited atonement means this, that the blood of Christ was only for the elect. Now, here's what I believe. That the shedding of the blood of Christ was sufficient for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I don't care how you look at it and how you try to, to take that word world and make it say something that it doesn't say. He meant the world and what he meant by that was every person that's ever been born. That the blood of Christ is sufficient for all, but it is only efficient for those who come to Christ. And then the eye is irresistible grace. What does that mean? It means that once the Holy Spirit of God begins to pursue a person's heart, that the Holy Spirit of God, in fact, John Bunyan called him the hound of heaven. That is, once the Holy Spirit gets your scent, he never loses it. The Holy Spirit of God begins to pursue and to pursue and to pursue and to rebuke and reprove and convict. And then the P stands for the perseverance of the Savior. Some say the perseverance of the saints. Well, the saints can't persevere unless the Savior perseveres. So it's the Savior that I want to put an emphasis on. So what's the difference between Calvinism then, Tulip, and Arminianism? It basically comes down to one thing. Arminianism believes that you can lose your salvation because they, they believe that we have an absolute, 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 say that with me, absolute free will. Now, we do have a biblical free will. God is not some puppeteer up in heaven saying, I'm going to save Matthew. Mm, I'm not going to save Ron. Oh, I'm not going to save so-and-so, but I'll save this. No, that's not that's God. That would make God a capricious God who didn't know what he was doing. But Arminium teaches that absolute free will means that you can choose to be saved today, but just because you choose to be saved today means you can choose not to be saved tomorrow. Now, what, is, what are these two warring groups all about? Well, that's why we have many of the different denominations that we have today. 
And you need to understand uh, what these uh, teachings are so that you know and understand what some of these denominations teach because people today say, so it doesn't matter what the name of the church is, it just, depends, it just depends on whether I connect with God or not. Well, yes, it does matter what that church teaches. Doctrine is absolutely important. If you don't have the right doctrine, I don't care how hallelujah you can get, how many times you run up and down the aisles, or how good it makes you feel to hear somebody tell you and tickle your ears, you are still, if you don't have the right doctrine, you don't have, you don't, you're not teaching the Bible and you don't have a right relationship with God. You, in fact, you don't even know who God is if you don't have the right doctrine about who God is. So what, a, what, a, what do we believe here at Warren Community Church? Well, I'm going I'm to give you two names. I call myself a biblical Calminian. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that I'm going to preach and teach what I believe the Bible says, and I'm not going to try to add to it or put God in some little five-letter word box that he that we won't, don't want him to break out of. Listen, God is God, and he'll do whatever he wants to do, when he wants to do, and how he wants to do it. The issue comes down to this. It's not so much whether God chooses someone to, for salvation and doesn't choose someone else. It's amazing to me that God would choose any of us because we're all condemned. And so it's all about God's grace. And it's mercy that he brought to us his salvation so that we could believe. And for those who believe on the name of the Lord, the scripture says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I believe that word whosoever is literally this, whosoever. These two warring tribes, here's what, here's what you have to do with it. These warring tribes of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, those are both absolute biblical truths. God is sovereign. He saves those whom he chooses to do so. That is God's business. It is not ours. We will never know and understand all that that means because if we ever understood all that that means, then we would be God ourselves. But we will never understand the mystery and the infinite magnitude of who God is. Arminianism teaches that God looked down through history in his foreknowledge. He looked down through history. And he saw that old Matthew down there, Matthew Watkins, he was going to believe. And therefore, he chose him based on that. That is garbage. So, Because where, where does the emphasis? The emphasis then becomes on Matthew's belief. Not on God's sovereignty. And anybody that teaches you that God is not sovereign and that, there's, that he is absolute in control of all things and knows all things and is everywhere present at, at all times in the totality of his being, and that he, 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 he absolutely is in complete control of all things, everywhere at all times. If they don't teach you that, then I give you permission to get up and walk out. <laughs> 
because you need to, because they've got the wrong view of God. But on the other hand, man has a responsibility to repent and to call upon the name of the Lord and to confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, for then thou shalt be saved. So it's a combination of both. You will never be able to put God's sovereignty and man's responsibility together. They are not, it's like oil and, and water. Almost said vinegar. All, I was thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch, I guess, a salad. All and water. They don't mix. But they're both biblical truths. So which one's right, Calvinism or Arminianism? Which one's the best one? Neither one. Because they both lack something. What's the best? A biblical view of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Now, I know that there are some today that, oh, in fact, there are whole denominations built on on this whole idea of Calvinism, or what is called Reformed theology, covenant theology. And then you have on the other side those who think that they can be saved one day and lost the next. But both of those, in my opinion, are often tangents and leave the true teaching of Scripture. So let's look at this passage, verses 6. Y'all didn't think I was going to get there, did you? I almost didn't, because I had a lot more I wanted to say. This is what it says. But is it not, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In other words, just because you were born a biological uh, Israelite doesn't mean that you are a true Israelite. And he explains the difference. We learned that in chapter 2 and chapter 3. What is the difference? A true Israelite, as Paul is referring to him here, are those who have the faith of Abraham and have trusted in what God told Abraham, that the promised seed would come and that the Messiah would come through that promised seed. Verse 7, Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That's what that verse says. Just because they're biological descendants of Abraham does not mean that they are the chosen people. That they have some type of privilege. That just because they're Jews, Israelites, that somehow God uh, will look over them and, and, and they're saved simply because they are biologically descendants of Abraham. Paul says no. Because in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Who was the seed? Christ was the seed, the Messiah. What's he, what's he referring to here? Abraham, the Bible says in Genesis 14, believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. How was Abraham saved? Because he believed God. The same way you and I are saved. We believe what the gospel says, and we believe as Abraham looked and, and looked forward to the gospel message coming through the Messiah that would come, you and I are able to look back and see it. Verse 9, that is, those who are the children of the flesh 
These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now let's flesh some of this out. God's elective purpose does not destroy prophetic accuracy. This, his first point here in verse 6, where he declares unequivocally that the word of God, that is the promises that God made to Israel, have not been nullified. They are not nullified. His purposes for Israel still stand. I don't have time this morning to go into all of the promises that were made in the Abrahamic covenant. But the major issue of the Abrahamic covenant is that he would send the Messiah. And it was only through faith that a true Israelite would become an Israelite. Not just because they were biologically descendants of Abraham. Now Paul already has touched on this in Romans chapter 2 verses 28 and 29 where he said this, that true Jews are not Jews outwardly, those who have been circumcised, as you remember we talked about that, but inwardly those who believe like Abraham did. So it's, it's really important to understand that Paul's argument applies with us today as well. The true Christian is not the one who identifies with all of the outward aspects of the faith, such as going to church, giving money, or acting religious. Rather, the true believer, or the true Christian, is the one who believes just as Abraham did in Genesis 15 and verse 6. There's a Puritan writer whose name was John, John Flavel, and he put it like this, If Abraham's faith be not in your hearts, it will be no advantage that Abraham's blood is in your veins. So God's elective purpose does not destroy prophetic accuracy. God has a, has a plan and a future plan for the nation of Israel. Now that applies in lots of different ways. Of fulfilling all of the promises that he made through Abraham. But my, uh, the, the main purpose was through the Messiah. God's elective purpose does not depend on physical ancestry. And we've already have talked about that, but in Romans 9, 7 through 9, he lays that out. He says that Paul is doing what he's doing here. He is appealing to the most authoritative person in the Jewish hierarchy, and that's Abraham, the father of, of the nation, as he's called. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, but only Isaac was the promised seed. And only through Isaac 
would the promise be fulfilled? Why didn't he fulfill it through Ishmael? Because that was not how God said it was to be done. Ishmael was the firstborn. But the promise, remember, was not just to Abraham. The promise was to Sarah, and Ishmael was not Sarah's son. The promise was to come through Sarah, simply because a 100-year-old man and a a 90-year-old woman could have a baby. That ought to confirm something that it was from God. You say, well, though their ages weren't, weren't like it we are today, there's nothing anywhere that you will be able to find that will make that true. They lived longer. And there are many reasons they lived longer. This this reality has been explained to Abraham and Sarah prior to Isaac's birth, that Isaac would be the one, not Ishmael. In fact, Even a great man like Abraham and Sarah, a great lady like Sarah, got out of the will of God, I believe. And because of that, there was this son born to a bondwoman, as the scripture says, that Sarah said, I will take her child and make him my child. But no, that didn't happen that way. They had to wait for God's fulfillment. And God fulfilled his promise. God's favor does not depend on physical ancestry. If it, if it did, Ishmael would have been the chosen. And here we see God's sovereignty. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. The next argument that Paul dismantles in in verses 9 through 11 is the argument that Ishmael was set aside because he was born of the Egyptian maid Hagar instead of Abraham's wife Sarah. So to prove that the issue was not the mother of the child but God's choice, Paul moves further on down into the line of Abraham's descendants to show the same choice made by God. And here it is. God's elective purpose does not depend on individual activity. Isaac, remember Isaac, the promised son? Isaac had twin sons. What were their names? Esau and Jacob. Esau was born first. He should have received the rights of the firstborn. That is, he would get a double inheritance. He would be the one that would take the patriarchy on and lead the family. But the Bible tells us here that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Now, why does it say that? Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? You know what the answer is? Because God wanted to. Pretty simple. Now, you can try to figure that out and try to wrestle with it and try to blame Esau for stuff that he did by selling his, you know, selling his uh, inheritance to, for a little bowl of soup. Or you could talk about how Jacob with his, with his mom, uh, how they conspired to, 
to fool Isaac and, and all the things you can talk about their sin and all that. Listen, you can talk about that all you want to, but the reason is God chose Jacob. He said, I will, that the older will serve the younger. And they knew that even before they were born. What's the point of those stories? Is that God is sovereign in his purpose in carrying out his choices. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. Now some want to react really negatively to God's choosing and saying his choice of some to be blessed means he chooses the rest to be cursed. Some call that double predestination. Let me tell you something. God has never and God will never and nowhere in Scripture can you tell me or show me or make me believe, because I have studied it over 40 years, that God, for no reason at all, just takes someone and sends them to hell. The Bible is very clear why someone goes to hell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But it goes on and down the next couple of verses and it says that the reason that people are condemned is because they choose not to believe on the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and in their unbelief that sends them to hell. God is not a capricious God that says, yeah, this one will be saved, this one won't be, this one will be, that one won't be. No. I will never believe that. His choice of some to be blessed and others not to be. In other words, here's the fact. All human beings are conceived and born in sin. Every one of us deserves the condemnation and judgment of God. That's what the Scripture teaches. God would have been unjust if He had not rewarded, if He had not rewarded that merit by choosing the deserving brother. But nothing that both brothers were un, undeserving in each case. In fact, they were both undeserving. Every one of us are undeserving. That's the parallel. God has shown no favoritism in His choice. It wasn't because Jacob was a, was a better son than Esau. If you look at Jacob's life, his name means usurper. He had some really bad problems in his own personal character. So did God choose him in spite of that? Yes, he did. He chose him simply because he's God. And if you can't accept that, you don't understand that you will never be able to figure out why God chose Jacob over Esau. And the only way to settle it is simply this, because that's what the Bible says. When God chooses one undeserving person but not another, the choice represents no favoritism. Now, why would God do it? It's all about God's grace. All human beings are headed for condemnation. Every one of us. And without God's grace, we would never be saved. His choice to save some doesn't send the rest to hell. They were destined for condemnation anyway. 
But his choice does reveal his grace and his mercy, granting salvation to some who don't deserve it. Do you think you deserve being saved? No, you didn't. None of us deserve the grace and mercy of God. That's what, if, if we did, it wouldn't be grace and mercy. It would somehow, it would be that we merited it, or we earned it, or we somehow deserved it. Now he uses some examples in Scripture where he uses Jacob. Remember Jacob? And, uh, you know, he goes to live with his uncle. He falls in love with a lady by the name of Rachel. And he ends up being tricked by his uh, father-in-law because Rachel was not the firstborn. And uh, it, was, it just was unheard of that a daughter... Uh, would be married that was not the firstborn before the firstborn. It was just unheard of. So Jacob gets tricked by his father-in-law, and uh, he wakes up after his uh, wedding, and he's married to Leah and not to Rachel. He had worked seven years to be able to have Rachel. But then he works seven years more, and he finally gets her. So did, when the Scripture says that, that Jacob hated Leah and he loved Rachel, does that mean that he literally hated her? No, it just simply means that he chose Rachel over Leah. He loved Leah. He had many children by Leah. She was his wife. And when he talks about how that Esau I have hated, um, if you look in, in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it talks about here in this chapter, it says, Yet Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Uh, by the time Malachi wrote these words, it had become clear that Esau's descendants had only a heart of evil toward God's chosen people. So God's choice was proven to be accurate almost a thousand years after it was made. But it was God's choice. Paul has shown that God's elected purpose doesn't negate his prophetic promises to Israel, nor does it depend on physical ancestry, and it does not depend on individual activity. Instead, his choices are made on the basis of simply this, his sovereign will. All we can do is bow before him and worship him and submit to the sovereign choices that he has made and, and know and understand that there's some things about God that we will never understand. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth or is his thoughts and his ways higher than ours. And then finally, God's elective purpose makes three statements about faith. First, the credibility of absolute faith. The Calvinist perspective says God made his choices based on his own sovereign desire and will. And we agree with that 100%. So we're all Calvinists, right? Well, we agree with that statement. And that's a part of Calvin teaching is that, that God made his choices based on his own sovereign desire and will. In other words, God is God, and he's going to make his choices depending on who he is, not on anything 
that we deserve. We, we agree with that 100%. The Armenian perspective says God looked down on history and foreknew man's actions and made his choices based on that foreknowledge. But in either case, God chose. But the problem with the Arminian view is, is that it was based on the merit of someone's belief throughout history, not on God's absolute choice. Man's free will does not change or determine how God chooses. Write that down and memorize it. Man's free will does not change or determine how God chooses. Only his choice determines how he chooses. So there's the credibility of absolute faith. You know what, you know what election and predestination and that sort, you know what that says to me? That the Bible tells us to do what? To go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. How do we make disciples? By preaching the gospel. And as we preach the gospel, that the Holy Spirit of God will move into a person's heart, will quicken that dead spirit to life, allow them the ability to believe, and then they will repent of their sin, they will believe the gospel, they will accept Christ, and they will be saved. That's why I know that as I go out and preach the gospel, somebody's going to be saved. It doesn't matter to me, and I don't really know who the elect are, but I know this, that if the gospel is preached, the elect will be saved. It's just that simple. Somebody will be saved. And that's our motivation. I really am not concerned about who the elect are. I'm concerned about the job God has given me, and that is to preach the gospel. Only God knows who the elect are. My job and your job is not to sit and, 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 and try to figure out all the, the sovereignty of God. Our job is to obey and to submit to what he's called us to do. And when we do, we will see him work. We have a choice to make. We must choose to believe. Then we see the possibility of artificial faith. There are some, no doubt, and here we see it uh, from the Apostle Paul. He's saying to the Jews, many of you have artificial faith because you are depending on your biological connection to Abraham to make you right with God. And he's saying that is not going to work. The only way that you will be a son of God or a child of God is that you come by the same way Father Abraham did, and that is to believe God and it will be counted to you as righteousness. Paul would likely be as, as heartbroken over the condition of much of of our churches today. Many people believe that being a part of cultural Christianity assures our acceptance before God. In other words, they equate things like attending church, which every Christian ought to do, with knowing God, just as Israel equated being a child of Abraham with knowing God. The question for you and me is simply this. Do we weep for those with artificial faith? As Paul wept, as we saw last week, his passion 
for his people. Everybody who is in the visible church is not necessarily in the invisible church. And what I mean by that, just because you're a member of a church doesn't mean that you are part of the body of Christ. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have not confessed your sin and repented of your sin, and the Holy Spirit of God quickens your dead spirit to life, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, I don't care how many times you come to church. I don't care how many pews you sit on. I don't Listen, just being inside the church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born in the backseat of a car makes you a spare tire. Now, coming to church is great. In fact, that was the first thing that I thought of when, when God began to deal with my heart and the Holy Spirit began to woo and call me. I said, I just need to go to church. And I went to church, but I heard the gospel, and the gospel quickened my dead spirit to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And for the first time in my life, I understood what God was saying to me. There's a lot out there with a false dependence. For all the years that I've been in the ministry, I've encountered people who felt sure that they were saved because of their or their family's heritage in that particular church or that particular denomination. But the only reality that gets anyone to heaven is a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. You know, that's all you've... That's, that's all you've got to worry about. You will never figure out the sovereignty of God. I'm just glad he is sovereign and that he doesn't change his mind. And he has a plan. And then finally, the necessity of authentic faith. The necessity of authentic faith. You know, the Bible could not be more clear in defining authentic faith. Look at these verses. 1 John 5, verse 12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I think that's pretty clear. Now, did he say anything there about what church you belong to? Or if you were a member of a church? Now, if you are saved... You're going to want to be a member of a church. You're going to want to be able to serve through the ministry of the local church. And you're going to, you're going to want to be able to, to, um, to support the ministry of the local church. Because it's through Christ's church, the bride of Christ. So the Bible doesn't say that he who goes to church has life. It says he who has the Son of God has life. But don't sit out here on some pond bank somewhere and say... Well, I don't have to go to church, I'm saved. If that's the way you think about church, let me say something to you, as pastorally as I know how. You're not saved. If your view of church is no more than that, there's something wrong in your heart. Romans 8, But you who are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. In other words, if the Spirit of God does not live within you, you're not saved. You know what the 
there's all kinds of teaching out there about how you know you have the Holy Spirit. Can I settle that for you this morning? Yes or no? Maybe? Let me settle it for you. How do you know if you have the Holy Spirit in your life? Now listen closely. Galatians 5, 22, 23. It's the fruit of the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit of God lives within you, the Holy Spirit of God is going to bear fruit. It is not how much you hoop and holler or run up and down the aisles or, or speak in some ecstatic language. It is proof that the Holy Spirit of God has changed your dead, miserable, sinful heart and has given you a heart of flesh that loves and has joy and has gentleness and kindness and all of those things, self-control. That is the proof of the Spirit. Galatians 3 says, Therefore know that only those who are of, who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The only way to become a true descendant of Abraham is to inherit Abraham's faith. And that is exactly what we mean, the necessity of authentic faith. There's where it is. Do you know Christ? Has is he Lord of your life? Have you surrendered your life to him? When you do, you will walk in obedience. Doesn't mean you'll be perfect. You won't, you'll never reach that here as long as you're in the flesh. But it will mean you will have a desire for God just as God has a desire for you. You'll have a desire for the things that, that God has a desire for. You'll have a desire for his church. You'll have a desire for his word. You'll have a desire for people, seeing people saved. You'll have a desire to preach the gospel. You'll have a desire to do anything and everything that you can, using every ability, talent, and time, and everything that you have to, to glorify God with what he's given. You will have a desire to do everything that God has called us to do. And if that desire is not there, there's something wrong. Maybe there's other things going on that's interfered with it. I don't know. But I just want to close by saying this. Don't get off in the tangent of trying to figure out election and predestination. You need to study it because it's in the Bible. But it is all about God. Election and predestination has nothing to do with you. God does not call us to go out and preach election and predestination. He calls us to go out and preach the gospel. And when we do, the Holy Spirit of God will do His work. And when the Holy Spirit of God does His work, people will be saved. And that's what we're called to do. Now, you can argue about all the fine points of those two, and you can go off in tangents, and you can, you can, you can have yourself a, a get-together, and, and that's all you want to talk about. Don't call that the deep things of God. The Bible calls it a mystery. You know there's something about a mystery? That's why they call it a mystery. 
There's some things you will never figure out about it. And what it will lead you to is to believe something that is not biblical. Sovereignty of God, responsibility of man. Two biblical truths. You will only be saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You'll only be saved when you believe. How does all that happen? Only God knows. Put those two out there where they are, both truths. Believe them both. Lord, we thank you today for your love for us, and thank you today that you do have a plan. It's your plan. It's not our plan. And you are the father of that plan. You are the designer of that plan. You are the developer of that plan. And you are the one, Lord, who will carry that plan out. I'm just thankful today to know, Lord, that you will save. And you will save those who will turn their hearts to you. And your Bible tells us, your word tells us, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, how do we call? It says, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What does it mean to confess? It means to agree with God. Do you agree with God today that, that we're all sinners? That you're a sinner? Do you agree with God today that Jesus Christ is the Savior? And you, like Abraham, will put your faith in his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, repent of your sin and turn from your sin and turn to Christ and call upon him. The Bible says, you shall be saved. You see, it's a work of the triune Godhead working in our hearts and lives. And as they do that, we respond in faith and believe. So, Lord, today I pray that if there's anyone here that's never trusted you, that today they'll make today that first step of a new life, a whole new beginning. And they will, like Abraham today, believe God and have it accounted unto them as righteousness. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons. If you want to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org.